Dus deze is aan. Goedenavond iedereen. Good evening everybody. Please find yourself a seat. Welcome to come up front. There is no reason to hide in the back. We shan't bite. Um, Leanna, I'm giving the mic to you. Hi everyone, welcome. Maybe if you do On top of it. On top of the chair, yeah. Hi everyone, welcome. Uh, welcome to this um, event, gathering amidst the ruins on the potential of assembly within the context of art institutions organized by Costco together with uh, Club Solo. People who are also here, welcome. Um, yeah, we're looking uh, very much forward to this evening. Thank you so much for joining. Um, also, uh, just a small uh, note, if you want to wear your mask, also feel free to wear it. <laughs> and uh, wait, let me get my notes. So yeah, I will give the uh, floor to Filipine Hoegen in a bit. So let me first introduce her. Filipine uh, Hoegen is an artist, researcher and educator based in Brussels, currently working on a long-term practice-based research project titled Performing Working. Um, yeah, and Philippine will tell more about the program and will also introduce the speakers. So please give a warm applause for Philippine. Thanks very much. And a warm applause for Liana also, who is the brain. Who is the brain behind this project. So just to tell you very quickly, this uh, evening is the first evening in a series of three. It's part of what is called the Symposium on Tour initiated by Club Solo. Mike Brokers and Florette Dijkstra are hiding in the back, but they are the, the motor behind this program with or a series of events with many iterations. Amongst them is a book called The Artist Run Space and the Future, which, by the way, you can buy order now free of postal charges until the 14th of December. Um, I'll tell a little bit more about the other events in this series after, at the end of the evening. But for now, just to say that this evening we're gathering amongst the, ru amongst the ruins to talk about assembly. There's of, we can welcome five speakers who will each uh, give a very particular sub subjectivity to the subject of assembly and the notion of assembly unpack this notion of assembly as a way of being together, a way of speaking together, and a way of working together. And to begin with, I want to invite Ying. Uh, Ying Kuei is an anthropologist uh, and an educator and cultural activist, and she's based here in Utrecht. Um, she is closely entangled to the ecosystem of Casco, where we are this evening. And she was very involved in the series of assemblies that Costco organized, and she will tell us about this. Uh, she's also a tutor for Costco Co-op at the DAI, the Dutch Art Institute. And there she teaches on food, commons, and ecology of belonging. Her practice is informed by anarchist, feminist, and anti- or decolonial curatorial and artistic work. And generally, she, this is aimed at facilitating collective practice. And with her queer collective Niet Normaal, she organizes parties and protests and exhibitions in the cultural center called Mora. Take it away, Ying. Thank you. 
I can do it. Do you? I know. I know you would like us to sit here, but I'm kind of reading. So do you mind if I stand there? Then I, I can not. click at the same time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you. Hello. Check. All right. Great. Let me see how to control. No, I think I would do it myself, because it's not so many. Uh, how do I click it? Oh, yes. Great. OK, cool. Hi. Uh, thank you, Philippine, for the introduction. Uh, and thank you to Leana for the invitation. I'm very happy to be here today. It's my home base. Uh, so uh, I'm happy to reflect with you on the questions that are posed for today's gathering amidst the ruins. So I'm going to do a few things. Uh, I'm going to run you through uh, Casco's, three of Casco's uh, assemblies uh, to kind of give you a sense of the evolution of the questions that we dealt with and the way that it was organized. But before that, I like to reflect on what is an assembly. Um, because something that was quite, is quite remarkable for me is the difference between uh, assemblies from the grassroots uh, and self-organized communities and versus the assemblies that are popping up in the art world, uh, in the institutional art world today. Um, so, of course, assembly, the word assembly is quite broad, right? So it may refer to all kinds of gatherings. Um, it's used in coding and programming language. Uh, Dutch Parliament, Tweede Kamer, is also called the General Assembly. Uh, so in using the word, I like to uh, approach it from a social movement perspective, um, which is mostly based on the Occupy movement, who in turn were deeply inspired by the Zapatistas. Assembly here refers to a gathering of people uh, that practice direct democracy, uh, consensus decision-making processes, and bottom-up organizing. It's not necessarily the form that Casco has taken on so far. Um, that they have maybe taken on a bit more the form of a conference uh, or like workshops, um, offering tools and methods for collective practice. Uh, mixed with open spaces, but these forms for assembly, but these forms for assembly from the grassroots uh, is really where I believe the potential for assembly within the context of art institution lies. So to start is this is a, an unfinished mural that the Zapatista delegation left at Moira last weekend. Um, so I should may know the, uh, there has been an airborne and a seaborne delegation of Zapatistas arriving to the continent in the past. A uh, few in the past three months, and they came to the Netherlands. They're in the Netherlands right now, and they visited us in Utrecht um, the past weekend. And as we were like hosting breakfast, they had some time uh, <laughs> until lunch, and there was paint around, and they did that, uh, which was quite an amazing gift. Um, and uh, it's it, 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 what one of the core things that they're also here to talk about uh, in Europe is to kind of present their seven principles um, uh, for how they how they call it the principles de mandar obedeciendo, which means kind of the rules, uh, which means kind of leading or ruling by obeying. So Mexican and Argentinian academic Enrique Dossel 
He calls this obediential power, which means the delegated exercise of the power um, of all authority that fulfills, fulfills the political justice claim. So it's based, on, based in relationality and oriented not towards uh, domination, but towards an ethics of social justice. Uh, relationality is a whole concept on its own, so just to address it very shortly, uh, is proposed in decolonial thought uh, as a possibility for dialogue um, and understanding across colonial difference, uh, accompanied by the urgent task of listening. So to return to the picture, on the top it says in red, uh, sembrar resistencia, so resistance, Para, and in pencil, they didn't paint it. <laughs> Para cosechar rebeldía, to reap rebellion. And then on the bottom, you have these seven uh, principles for mandar obedeciendo, lead or rule by obeying. So just to run you through them quickly. The first is obedecer y no mandar, meaning to obey and not to command. Second, representar y no suplantar, to represent and not to substitute. Uh, third, uh, servir y no servirse, meaning to serve, uh, not to be served. Construir y no, no destruir, to construct, not to destroy. Proponer y no imponer, to, propo to propose, not to impose. And finally, batar y no subir, just go below and not up. Oh, excuse me, yes, convencer y no vencer. Uh, to convince, not to defeat. So key to these principles, it's always the people that decide. Let me quote. It implies that political leaders do not make decisions on behalf of their community as its representatives, but rather act as the community's delegates, implementing decisions made in local assemblies, a traditional decision-making mechanism, and these exist on a village level and in contrast to traditional assemblies of Mexico include women, whose empowerment has been at the center of the Zapatista revolution. Assemblies elect delegates to a municipal council, the next level of the Zapatista administrative structure. And next, on the regional level, several autonomous municipalities are represented through delegates in juntas of buen gobierno, uh, the councils of good government called so in contrast to the bad Mexican government. JBG G, G, members serve for three years on a rotating basis in shifts as short as three weeks." End quote. So what I think is interesting here about assembly is that it fulfills a crucial role within the structure for governance. So the Zapatistas are practicing this on a large scale, where they moved from autonomous territories to autonomous municipalities. And assembly was already an existing um, uh, form for democratic gathering uh, amongst the indigenous communities that they are representing. So in 1994 and 1996, uh, Zapatistas organized uh, the Intercontinental Encuentro, which are considered to be the first and largest global anti-neoliberal gatherings, and from which the People's Global Action was born, who initiated the Alter Globalization Movement. So the, the little logo on the bottom is the People's Global Action logo. Um, 
That movement, the ultra-globalization movement, was at the foundation of the Occupy movement, who adapted uh, Zapatista strategies to fit their own situation. A small group of anarchists and anti-authoritarians gathered to plan the occupying of Wall Street in the uh, neoliberal center of Manhattan, capitalist center of Manhattan. Um, and they set up their assemblies based on anarchist and Zapatismo principles, like self-organization, mutual aid, and solidarity. And little did they know that at the time that their actions would go global. Their defining political strategies were horizontalism, consensus, decision-making, and the political use of masks. Uh, this is a picture I took in my fieldwork in 2012 in New York City. Um, horizontalism uh, proposed the popular assembly as an alternative to the party system. It aims to be non-hierarchical, anti-authoritarian, and without leaders. I quote, the aim of the assembly is simply to bring into direct, immediated contact the people with themselves, as opposed to a small gathering of representatives speaking on the behalf of the people. If there is any alternative at all to the problems posed by political parties, it must begin with a popular gathering of the people, in particular those who are disproportionately excluded from the party system. These assemblies are then connected to other assemblies through horizontal social networks, including national and international gatherings. In contrast to the corruption of the party, the horizontal diffusion of power reduces the likelihood and effect of political corruption, since the assembly has no leader to be corrupted. Obviously, that was an ideal. That's the ideal. Uh, my personal facilitation practice has its roots in the horizontal facilitation methods used by Occupy, but now I rather call it anti-oppressive facilitation, in which also Hodan, that will speak here later, is a, a great companion and inspiration. Because obviously in practice, hierarchies, power relations, and power abuse are always present, and not easily unlearned just by simply gathering together under these principles. Rather, unexist uh, rather existing inequalities will inevitably show their true colors. Uh, and Occupy was actually also critiqued to be just a democracy of who shows up. A Mexican artist friend from Crate Invertido described the reality of horizontalism not as a flat process that has no hierarchy, but more as a process that goes in waves. Gathering like that has to be rehearsed and adapted. Um, each and every person, oh, sorry, gathering like that has to be rehearsed and adapted, but it's been something like a horizon uh, to walk towards. Consensus decision-making processes are another core matter. So instead of a majority decision, each and every person present in the assembly has to agree to, uh, to the decision made. In practice, it means meeting for a very, very long time until everybody is heard and some kind of compromise has been reached. So why all this in the context of, uh, when talking about assemblies in the context of art institutions? Um, I wanted to lay out these foundations to think further about assemblies in the art world. So in the case of CASCOM, the assembly has been uh, taken up as a politicized form of gathering, uh, of bringing people together to share knowledge and strength, to harvest, um, uh, collect, to, to be harvested for collective processes 
processes of collective coordination. So Casco assemblies have been described as an annual get-together for commoning art institutions through collective unlearning workshops and action plans. They started as an attempt to gather people who were interested in the commons. I say they, I should say we. We started as an attempt to gather people who were interested in the commons, in tools, in methods for collective practice. Um, and please note uh, that these assemblies were called by Costco as an institution. So discursive direction, discursive direction program and invitations uh, of uh, guests were taken on by the Casco team and the steering committee, um, consisting of artist Annette Kraus, who is in the room right there, <laughs> uh, curator Yolandi van Heide, also behind Annette, uh, and myself. Um, although institutional but considering the size and the monetary wealth of Casco, I think it's up for discussion whether our assemblies are an assembly from above or from below. Uh, all right, so the as a, from the website, quoted from the website, the assembly is neither a symposium nor a political assembly, but a hybrid form of collaboration, sharing and collective care. Each assembly devotes itself to an agenda item in working sessions, workshops, lectures, and pitches, and then dedicates ourselves to a collective decision-making process and an agenda for further development. Uh, during assembly, financial and non-financial resources are collected that are used to realize that agenda. Assembly works according to the common principles of cooperation, whereby each participant is given a valid voice that can be heard in various ways and participants are actively, uh, actively learn about the different ways in which a working method based on the commons can be introduced uh, in their own work, uh, practice, and organizational structure. So I can see how all these assemblies were gatherings in the ruins, <laughs> amidst the ruins, of what feminist and anti-colonial scholars have referred to as CPC, Ruins from Colonialism, Patriarchy, and Capitalism as an attempt to mobilize people around collectivized forms of working together. If even in the ruins there is life, how should we organize our survival? Each assembly put forward a, a question. So this is the first from 2018, titled Elephants in the Room. And it asked, within the context of the commons, how does art institutional change relate to unlearning, particularly with regards to redistribution of power? So this assembly was uh, based on the study line uh, around unlearning, which was a collaborative research, uh, research trajectory undertaken by the Casco team and um, artist Annette Kraus, and it's still an ongoing study trajectory for Casco. It looked at oppressive uh, institutional habits and routines that we unwillingly or unconsciously reproduce. Um, racism is an example of that, uh, working for a boss is an example of that. Um, at Costco we looked at how we as an organization could revalue reproductive labor and care work. So the assembly was also the occasion for the launching of that book, the unlearn of the book, Unlearning Exercises. And the program was built around six unlearning sessions dealing with unlearning reproductive uh, labor and care, colonial legacies in built-in environments, uh, decolonizing practices, diverse art economies, and funding paradigms. And finally, an experiment with the collective pot. All right, I'll try to finish quickly, two minutes. <laughs> um, that was 2018. 
um, this is 2019, our house is on fire. Um, the question asked there uh, is what practical measures were art and art institutions take to care for our planetary commons with the power of imagination? So the first, uh, so this assembly gathered around the uh, draft for um, a climate justice code. Uh, which kind of mirrored after the governmental codes around the fire, fair practice code for artist wage, um, but also the diversity and inclusion code. Um, and it was an invitation uh, to those with the power of art and the imagination to reconcile the way in which we as artists and art institutions uh, practice our politics within daily life in response to the climate crisis. So the first draft was written by an editorial committee consisting of different collectives and organizations um, busy with climate justice and the comments, uh, and then they proposed a draft for the assembly to be reworked over the course of two days. Um, from that assembly, a working group committed uh, to taking on the code and somehow finalizing it. And since then, they have been writing, inviting uh, more, uh, commissioning more texts, uh, and kind of embarked on, a, on an intensive study trajectory about anti-racism for white people. This is that last one. Uh, this is um, the assembly we did last year in 2020 from behind our computers because it was a pandemic. <laughs> the question was, when there is never enough time and survival is uncertain, how do collective art practices continue their ways of being together and shape art institutions working for the commons? Uh, it was an interesting shift uh, because uh, uh, at this time, it was actually Casco's ecosystem that shaped the content of the assembly. So during the first day, 20 or so groups connected to Casco through vision, through practice, or ongoing collaboration, presented a C word during different conversation tables. So the collected response together made up uh, C words for the comments. And the second day it was kind of like a, a different mapping uh, workshops to show connections and entanglements uh, and or counterpoints. Almost there. <laughs> Last Monday, uh, we had a meeting with the uh, Casco team and the steering committee because we have to write something about assembly process. Uh, and I'd like to share a few questions from that uh, meeting here to uh, you all to bring for the next um, few hours. So one question is around the assembly as a process for deinstituting. So what's an institution? Uh, should we understand it as a legal entity? In that sense, it has very practical benefits, having a bank account, a common administration system, um, but that also has the tendency to become monstrous, bureaucratic, and rigid, right? Uh, institution also includes the habits and the routines ingrained and reproduced within our bodies and also in policy. So if we are the institution, uh, does it mean that we should aspire to reform or to abolish the institution? How to leave an institution that doesn't give life? <laughs> For us, uh, the Casco assemblies have moved within the dimensions of reproductive labor and care work and put core focus on unlearning modern colonial institutions. So it's been about noticing what has remained invisible, what has been silenced and geared towards trying to revalue all that. But we haven't formulated any specific protocol or core principles for our assemblies, apart from values and ethics that are found within the commoning practices. 
We also talked about the, how the potential of uh, the assembly uh, could be, how the, we also talked about how potential of the assembly um, could be in the structure of governance. So in that sense, our sense leaves have been top-down, uh, called and filled in by CASCO and steering committee, drawing in like-minded people and collectives parallel to the solidification of what we have come to call ecosystem. So can the assembly uh, function as a governance structure for the ecosystem? If so, what and who is the ecosystem? And what are the collective decisions that an assembly would be making? I'm out of time, so I'm gonna leave you with that questions. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, you leave us with questions, but we also, I'm sure, uh, are, uh, have other questions. Uh, there will be a general discussion at the end, so please hang on to your question. Try not to forget it. It's, uh, it will come, that your time will come. Uh, for now, we're going to listen to Janine van Berkel, who's a graphic designer, a visual researcher, and a writer. And she's interested in, in what way her multi-ethnic body relates to the bigger colonial structures, especially focusing on the relationship between Curaçao and the Netherlands. In her ongoing research and story, through the semi-forgotten memory of herself and the known, both known and unknown histories, of her various motherlands, she looks for answers and shapes of what silence looks like. Janine. Yes. Thank you for that introduction. I'm excited to be here. Um, I wanted to start with a moment, and if you feel comfortable to all close your eyes, um, and if you don't, that's also okay. It took 361 years of history before I was born. The Spaniards stole Curaçao from the Arawaks in 1499. The Netherlands stole Curaçao from the Spaniards in, 14, or in 1634. I was born in Curaçao in 1995. And now I'm here, in between Curaçao and the Netherlands, in between black and white, I'm a consequence of this colonial history. In Venus into Act, Sadia Hartman says, loss gives rise to longing, and in these circumstances, it would not be far-fetched to consider stories as a form of compensation or even as reparations, perhaps the only kind we will ever receive. 
I lost something, but I forgot what it is. At night, I lay in bed and think of all the things I forgot. It's weird to think of the emptiness of your memories because what comes to mind? I visualize rooms with fading shapes, sometimes reoccurring if somebody tells me a story. Most of the time, I store the memory of the retelling where my lost memory once was. I crave for knowledge that I will never know. You can open your eyes again. Two years back, I finally started uh, my research, which I call Soft Histories. I say finally because um, I've been carrying this topic of my research my whole life. And keeping a distance was the safest choice. Sometimes people are just not ready to talk about their pain and maybe that's okay. While researching or searching, I explore the silences of communal and personal history, uh, lost memories, oral stories, and everything that falls in between the gaps. The different iterations are part of an ongoing research and story to the semi-forgotten memory of myself, the place where I began, the people who are or are not here, the people I don't know yet or anymore the known and unknown history and the various motherlands of my ancestors. Maybe I will find what I'm looking for, maybe not. I found new words to talk with, but also lost some things to say. Lost tongue. Mama couldn't talk for 10 years after we left the island. She left all her words behind because there was nothing left to say. Sometimes grief is slow like that. I just said, Mama, I hope you can hear me. Silence is also a ghost. Sunday is my sister and my brother, but only halfway. They said, they told a story about how everything will be forgotten, how there only will be empty shells at the sea, how the hands will become a shell one day, how my face is fading, how their face is also fading, how in time our names will mean nothing to him. I can only think about how ironic it is that I'm trying to remember only for him to forget, how time is not on my side. They also asked if I wanted to see the shell. I said, no. Alternative ending. 
I said, I don't know. Again, I said, later. Nog een keer, I said. Nothing, because there's nothing left to say. I was introduced to the ghost, uh, to the concept of ghost and haunting during the workshop Ghost Stories and the Invisible by Liana Bova, which was a part of the workshop series The Diary as a Feminist Genre, initiated by Emma van Meijeren. Here we talked about ghosts as the embodiment of what we can't fully grasp, as well as beings that are made invisible. This workshop departed from Avery Gordon's understanding of ghostly matters. Um, which is a book, uh, Ghostly Matters, Haunting and the Sociological Imagination. I quote here from there, um, to be haunted is to be tied to historical and social effects, end quote. I saw a connection in the topics I've been thinking about, um, but also in the way I've been working. I keep coming back to the same objects, the same text, the same photographs, the same questions, and the same absence of knowledge. Like Yves Tuck describes in a glossary of haunting, I quote here, haunting lies precisely in its refusal to stop, end quote. I can't stop reshaping this question of the past because it shapes my presence. In a way, I'm the ghost that is haunting myself. There's one cabinet in the house that knows everything. It sits in the hallway, never catching the sun. Its caramel-colored wood is sleek. The top part expands into a small table with different stacks of unsent envelopes. I know this is not the place I'm looking for. I move down to the slightly bent doors. I open the cabinet and see piles of paper, small boxes, and folders left there to be forgotten. Not sure where to begin, I grab a shoebox in a bag. I shift through the papers as fast as I can. Suddenly, I see my eyes looking back at me. I carefully examine the face because it's not mine. The features feel familiar. I almost recognize myself. I know this is the hand, the man who looks like me. From that moment, I can't stop. For years, I have been, am still wondering. What do I keep looking for? 
Mama asked me why I say it's the price I have to pay for silence over and over again. In the, in the end, the question is, what will I take and what will I leave behind? Simone van Saarlo stalks in Herdenken Herdacht, in Essay om te vergeten about ghostly matters. In the footnotes, they discuss the way um, Gordon is advocating the sociology should uh, deal with what is lost and gone. And I quote here, that which is apparently not present or visible forms us. It creates a, so a social world. That knowledge of things behind things belongs to sociology and can be achieved by listening to echoes and murmurs from the past. Gordon's book encouraged to look, listen, and fantasize beyond the comprehensible. I have been listening to the silence in my personal history, but also the shared history of the ABCSSS islands. Throughout history, many different people have come to live on the different islands. Everyone carries their own generational knowledge and trauma in their bodies. And because of these different perspectives, we have different experiences. These questions for, um, the question for me then is how can we come together when it's my time, your time, our time to speak or to listen? Which stories do we share? Which stories are unique? Which stories do we um, store in our collective memory? In general, I'm looking for recognition in visual representation, cultural repetitions, and shared stories. Despite the fact that I hear more and more stories, the islands still feel not represented enough. Out of some kind of scarcity, um, I long for gathering. I long to hear the untold stories, the stories behind the mainstream, the stories without words. Somehow I'm looking for community because of my fragmented perspective, um, torn body and torn mind. I feel lost in the in-between. What do we or I do with the remnants of the past? How do we navigate what's left behind? Um, an important part for me is the way we share, in what kind of space are we? Uh, what do we see? What do we hear? How do we position our bodies in relation to the listener? How do we position our bodies in relation to the speaker? Um, this may also be due to my design background, but I'm mainly looking for a space to feel safe to speak. In my practice, I do this by means of sound or smell of objects. Um, These um, handmade ceramic pieces are the embodiment of trying to make memories concrete. They are in an interpretation of the sound uh, that shells and coral make underwater. They remind me of bones from the past. They carry the imprint of my hand, my body. They are the negative space of my fist. And when they're hung, they sound like the wind chimes in the Caribbean.
This is how memory works. I take a piece while it's still soft, move it around in my left hand, shape it, move it in between my fingers, move it until my hand hurts. My left hand gives it to my right hand, to my left hand, to my right hand, but it's not quite right yet, so I do it again and again. It tries, tries to slip away and I make a fist. They are bones, corals, chimes, past, mine. They are yours. My hand is thinking about the hand, thinking about the fist, thinking about the imprint of my skin, thinking about the imprint on the memory, thinking about how I'm back at the beginning with all the bones that I've made. Thank you. Thank you so much, Janine. Not only a participation in assembly, but also an exemplification of what an assembly can be. Thank you so much for that. Um, again, rem remember your questions. There is going to be time, don't worry. Um, but we, now we're going to go immediately on to Hodan Warsame, who is a facilit facilitator working on anti-repression and also on intersectionality. And Hodan will also come back to the Costco uh, assembly. So in case you thought that went very fast when Ying was speaking, um, we're going we're to hear a bit more about them. Ying. Uh, sorry, Hodan. Thank you. Um, so yeah, anti-oppression facilitation, like Ying said. Um, uh, thank you to the to Ying and um, Janine <laughs> for sharing. And um, so I find myself wondering who I'm in the room with. What is this assembly? <laughs> Who's assembled assembled here? Um, so I just wanted to ask. Um, just to get an idea of who I'm speaking with, um, are there a lot of students of art institutions in the room? And maybe te teachers? Or are there teachers in here? Or are there people that work at art institutions? Except for the Costco people that I know. <laughs> Sorry, ex-students, yeah, yeah, okay. So um, most of my assembly experience is <laughs> attending or, um, or um, participating in the assemblies that um, Ying and Bina, Yolandi and <laughs> Annette organized and that, that was new for me. Um, and since then I've gotten to know art, the art institu institutional art world a little bit more. And um, I'll start with sharing what I think is what struck me and what I found very valuable of the assemblies that I took part in, um, why I found them such welcoming spaces. I really appreciate that the people at Costco, um, it starts with personal relationships um, and there's a lot of care and a lot of trust when you get an invitation. That's how I've experienced it, at least, from Aneta and Ying and Bina, Yolande and uh, Mariana. 
and I name the names of people because I feel like that's um, what at, what's at the core of what those assemblies were about, that it's about learning and unlearning together, and that the assemblies indeed, uh, the way that uh, Ying also um, told the story, that they're part of a process, an ongoing process that the people are committed to um, in trying to learn together and to also hold each other accountable, to reflect openly, transparently, um, to make mistakes, to talk about it, to invite others, to know that you're not an expert, to build um, learning together, to um, undo some of the um, hierarchies that exist. I found it really um, valuable um, for me. Um, um, it was really special for me to be in a space with people from all over the world. It wasn't just people from Western Europe or from the States or Canada. It was people from all over. And, um, and at the same time, there was transparency about, okay, there's, <laughs> I mean, it is an institutional group of people who are working within an institutional structure and trying to do something different and trying and also being open and honest about the violence that is part of it. And um, so when I read Ruins, I was like, Ruins, how, how come Ruins? Um, institutions are violent and white supremacy and, and the capitalism and the racism and the patriarchy that's part of those are very much alive, alive and well. And if you're part of an institution, if you work at an institution, if you're a student at an institution, if you're doing um, a student initiative, if you're a teacher and you're giving a class and you're part of the bureaucracy and the, the workings of an institution, if you're a person who's a curator working independently in institutions or part of, a, of an institution, you're, yeah, we're all implicit in that violence. And, um, and it's, it is, they're hard, hard places to be. And it's very, very easy um, to, um, in, in an effort to uh, survive um, and also to just make a career and also to be safe and also to feel like you're important to participate in uh, violence against others, to be um, uh, silent when you see stuff happening. And I just want to bring that into the room, even though in the invitation it's uh, generative and not only critical. <laughs> I was like, okay, let's not, let's not pretend because um, if, if you're a person of color, if you're, um, you know, if you have disabilities, uh, if if you don't have the right papers, uh, yeah, it's going to be very difficult to survive and to maintain your mental, emotional, spiritual health in places that are uh, very white and very white supremacist with all the CPC that comes comes with it. And I'm at the moment um, working at the National Museum for World Cultures. Um, it's not an easy place to be. And so I want to start with first saying what I really enjoyed about the Costco assemblies and then move on to what I think, I, what I, how I now look at assemblies in general, now having a little bit of a bigger view and a little bit more experience in the cultural institutional world um, from working at, in it both as an activist, a freelancer, and also now an employee. Um, what I liked about the Costco assemblies, uh, I already said like the collaborative learning, unlearning, and holding each other accountable. I feel like it's part of a, sometimes um, um, an assembly kind of can become a trend. Probably it is by now, as uh, Ying alluded to. But <laughs> in, in the sense, in the art institutional world, what I found really genuine and really um, 
generative sort of um, is that it was a space that it was gatherings that sort of built uh, upon each other and that it's part of a longer process um, that at the core were personal relationships and also a, a lot of care and a lot of contact between people. That's how I experienced it. Um, and um, that you ge I genuinely felt this is some place where we can learn together to do things in a different way because we all sense are impacted by or can see other people impacted by these violent institutional habits and 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 that's cool it was an assembly for an assembly's sake you know it was an assembly because you come together and you're all invested in um moving forward and creating something different um together so i i really liked uh i really liked that um i liked the, the trust that that the team put in me, and I liked the opportunity to make mistakes, and um, yeah, I mean, the workshop that I gave with my friend Aisha, I don't really think it was a particularly good workshop, but it was, but I learned, you know, I learned, uh, uh, we, we learned, we talked a lot about it afterwards, and we were like, eh, we, we didn't really know what we were doing, we thought we did, but we didn't really, but that was the cool thing that we could, you know. Um, so, now, um, looking in hindsight, how do I see assemblies, um, and what would I, th what, what, I, what would I like to share with you as people who are um, inhabitants of the institutional art world? Um, um, when you use a word like that, and I, I really loved your presentation, Ying, because it really brings it back to. Um, so, what are we talking about? Um, it can um, sort of erase the hierarchies, as you said. It can erase, using the word assembly implies or it sort of creates this illusion of horizontality, of there are no hierarchies anymore. But the last assembly that I was part of, yeah, there were people there from the academic world that hold budget, that sort of manage budgets, budgets of millions of euros. And they're working together with people all over the world. Some, and they're talking about we're brothers and sisters, and I'm like, how how is how is this assembly, um, in the way that it's organized and in the way that people are relating to it, uh, to each other within this process, um, undoing the hierarchies that exist, the hierarchies between people that have European citizenship and the people people who don't have papers, or the hierarchies between somebody who's freelance or has a very precarious financial position or contract versus somebody who is um, very high up in an institution and has a, has a permanent contract. Um, so um, it can be very performative. And I think that that's what I've learned that the art world can do so well. It can really, really um, play the, wor yeah, the word game really well and the branding game really well. And that's, I'm not from the art world and it's, I'm sort of coming in as an anti-oppression facilitator, giving workshops here and there or giving, a, and it's really the, the ability to take something and to um, sort of not, to sort of hollow it out of its meaning and use it because it's trendy, use the word because it's trendy and, and sort of perform all of these, sort of play, play this game or, or sort of you know, that, 
doesn't really have anything to do with the actual um, creation of a better world or to shift things materially. Um, I think that's really astonishing and it's really confusing to me and it's, it pisses me off and also it, it um, makes it very frustrating to be even in a space like this but um, I'm here because I'm really grateful that I was part of the Costco assemblies and, and Bina asked me and I'm happy <laughs> to share, um, to, to give my compliments and to be grateful. But I'm, also, um, but I'm also kind of like, I don't trust the art institutional world. I don't trust it when they use words that are like decolonial assemblies. I don't trust it because behind it I've seen that the same people that are organizing that kind of stuff or using those words are being um, extractive. The ideas of, uh, of black women are being <laughs> copied and not credited. Um, um, students are being mistreated um, and um, to the point where they have to leave art school because they're seen as their art is too much about their identity when they want to talk about, for example, their blackness or they want to talk about um, being from Palestine or they want to... So, it feels like a lot of the times in the art institutional world, when I hear things like assembly or words like that, it's really just about, um, it's, just, um, it's just using something um, and not really living it. And I think that what I learned, my experience of, of assembly was about how do we shift power dynamics, the question of the first assembly, and how I see um, the art world using assembly now, or how I imagine it is, because I've seen it being done with other words like decoloniality, or you know, um, anti-racism, or Black Lives Matter, or whatever, I feel like whenever I hear um, somebody <laughs> using those words, organizing something, inviting somebody even to talk about it, I'm like, how do you treat your people? How do you treat your students? How do you treat your, co your colleagues? How do you treat your, um, um, your guests coming to speak? Um, what are your relationships like? And I feel like in participating in, in spaces like this, in organizing stuff like this, what our institutions can do is sort of like, um, it really covers and um, ha lets people hide from accountability. And I feel like Costco assemblies were part about, were, were partially also about building in accountability, at least, I don't know, maybe a romanticized vision, but I think that what, what, how it can happen is that you can be invited to be an expert and talk about assembly uh, and, and how to you know, gather together, work together, speak together in a way that um, un dismantles power relationships. And you can be a very horrible colleague. And you, you know, like you can be somebody who basically is stealing other people's, you know, uh, people of color's ideas in your school or in your art institution. You can be somebody who's basically only interested about making a career um, and, and, and walking all over people, especially people of color, people with disabilities, people who don't have papers, people who have experiences of all these structural oppressions. So I'm calling bullshit on assemblies uh, unless they're, unless they're uh, organized by my friends. Who I can, who I can, who who I can hold accountable. If you're not up for being held accountable, if somebody comes to you and says you've stolen my idea, or if if you're organizing an assembly and you're not thinking to yourself, why am I organizing this assembly? 
Who does the idea come from? Where do the ideas come from um, that I want to discuss here? Who has done the work before me? How do I include them? How do I build upon their work? <sighs> Filipina, I'm getting pissed off. Yeah, that does help. <laughs> then you're not really doing anything that's in the spirit of an assembly. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Hodan. Yeah, thanks. Um, I, I, I really like and appreciate um, this definition of ruin that you've given us. Um, which, if I repeat it, is a structure becomes a ruin once gaps form through which the outside and exterior forces can come in freely. Ruination, in other words, is a process in which the delineated becomes porous. Um, I think this already makes me think a lot about how this can relate to political process uh, and also literally to structures or um, modes of assembly. Um, and yet this very much links to this process of the longhouses uh, and their decay. Um, I was reading a bunch from uh, Penny uh, Bickle um, when I was doing my uh, thesis work. And it was the case a lot of these longhouses uh, from the Neolithic period that they would be built um, next to a former longhouse, and that these longhouses would be left to decay in the situation in which they were built, in situ, um, just alongside the, the existing longhouse, um, instead of them being assembled. And I, this, is, this is completely fascinating um, instance. Yeah, I, I was drawing a lot of inspiration from longhouses, not just as a model for architecture or commons or politics, but, but also as a, not even just as a model, but as something to, to think with or join with as like this undead way of relating. Uh, and how these longhouses were made through the specific relations and decisions kind of is quite something there. Um, and so there's this, I mean, one of the principal aspects of that, which is interesting, is that there is a continuity within what could be called a tradition, but each longhouse is specifically different from the next longhouse. So there are things that are constant, but they're never the same also. So this is quite interesting. So there's what you could call a knowledge of building, right, which was derived from wider practices, which were socially emergent and were manipulated in specific decisions by specific households. Um, so you have these moments of variation occur at the moment of building the house, right? The post layout had to be set to the ground as the house was being built, and thus was part of the numerous decisions that had to be made before and during construction, right? The size, the location, collecting the wood, gathering enough people to build the structure, and so on. So, I mean, related to this knowledge of building, would also be the memories of when other houses had been built and referencing of earlier phases of the settlement. And if I read a quote from, um, from uh, Penny Bickle, who I mentioned, um, she says that we are not dealing with the general sense of ancestry, 
but with specific relations between households and people, which were kept alive through the physical location of the house close to those that might have been abandoned. And I, I can just go on about like how, I mean, I'm just going to keep quoting her. Um, she says that the continued manipulation of post spaces, and what she means by post spaces is that the longhouses, the space that you move through is dictated by the space between these posts, and the post is what holds up the structure of the house, and it also tells you how you move through it. There's a certain orientation uh, of the posts to each other. So they would have meant each house has a slightly different engagement between people and architecture. If the house form had remained truly stable and not open to manipulation, it would not have continued for so long as it would not have been able to play a role in the ongoing negotiation of the different possible ways of being in the community. And I, I just think that's such a truly poetic and beautiful and also very material reflection, which I think, if you think of the Longhouse as an institution, it's also a very beautiful, not even a metaphor, but just a description of how an institution could be, which I think relates a lot to what you were saying about porosity and and learning through decay also, right? This, you're going back to this knowledge of building. I can maybe describe to you how I think that this becomes relevant to what I do also as an architect or someone that's involved in kind of creating assemblies. So, so for me, I think this, this signifies a shift from a typological form of thinking to a topological form of thinking. Right? Like we can think of the longhouse or an assembly or architecture in a typological frame of reference in which we're dealing with typologies, right? Uh, that's a lot of how architectural history is, is, is dealing. There's a typology for these types of houses, right? This is a whatever canal house, this is a longhouse, this is a whatever. Um, and then the type kind of dictates the tradition and the type is kind of repeated almost as a, as a method. Um, and a topological way of thinking, it's a differentiation from thinking in terms of entities towards thinking in terms of relations that define a space of possible entities. So it's making a topology, like a landscape or a field in which it's possible for things to be created. So there's some reference, some knowledge of building which maybe comes from the memories or relations to what has been there and is maybe decaying next to you or that you've been a part of but you're not bound to repeating those things as they were but you can kind of enter anew starting from where you left off and for me I think this changes completely my way of thinking about how we would make stuff or how we would decide together what to do, which can be a, a political exercise or, or how to deal with institutions or assemblies or, and so on. Um, it, it, it's something, uh, a friend of mine uh, who's also a collaborator and a mentor of mine, Alberto Altes, would call a shift away from method and into mode, uh, like to be against the method, right? A method is to say that this is how we do things, and you do it like this, that, and that, and then you have a, a, a certain kind of result, result, like a scientific method, for instance. Uh, they say it's 
unlike modal, method implies a pre presupposition of translatability or applicability, and therefore universality. We did this here, it is a method, we can do it again elsewhere because we know it works. A mode is instead, is instead situated or singular. It works here and now. It is working. A mode is not a model. A mode is a way of doing something as you are doing it. Once you stop, it's over. Um, yeah, so sorry if you think that's like a very weird format that I'm sitting here and it's also playing, but I'm not so good with like ideas of these things. So um, I'll just speak very briefly very briefly about two assemblies I was organizing as a, as a teacher at Vedika last year. I mean, a part of a group of people that were organizing it, not like it's an official assembly. And also something I was doing as a student at uh, TU Delft. Um, and I think, uh, something which I think is like threading through these assemblies, which I think goes a lot with what was being said earlier, which I think is something which is to be like against the form of things, because I think, I mean, it's obviously you can have a non-hierarchical collective of white supremacists, for instance. So the, the, the form of, of how things are uh, by itself does nothing, right? So, so that's why I'm, I'm thinking in terms of architecture, which is like I'm anti-formal and I'm also anti-method. So I, I also think, like, related to that, I think I, I'm quite interested in things in which the... I mean, you have a type of thinking in which the values are preceding the event, and you have another type of thinking in which the values are kind of emerging through the unfolding interactions within an event, right? So I, I, I so some, with, with these assemblies, I, I think that there's uh, an attention towards that distinction. I think it's a very important distinction, right? Where it doesn't mean that we're coming in defenseless and porous. We are, let's say, not identifying with a pre-existing set of values, which is gonna say, this is what we care about, and I'm gonna have an affinity with those people beforehand. But it's, I'm coming into, I'm committed to engaging in encounters as a person with values, right? So I, I think that this is something that we did um, with uh, the assembly at Vedika, which, which of course started, I don't know if you're familiar with this, started with the institution silencing some uh, master students from giving their support for Palestinians. And then uh, a bunch of teachers and alumni and students got together to make our own assembly to say what kind of demands we want of the institution. So within this concrete list of demands that we gave to the institution was also this sort of long and wild list of all the demands that came out of our countless meetings and pad edits and assemblies to say what do we value, what do we care about, right? And then we just sent this whole process to the institution. So they have a concrete list of demands and they also have all the demands which we didn't ever have the time or probably would never have the time to get into and resolve and come to a consensus about, right? So there's this tension between um, wanting, uh, I mean, this tension between the oppressiveness of having to speak as one voice and also having to be able to speak collectively, right? And that tension is sometimes, I mean, for the most time or pretty much all the time, it's never resolved, right? But so I think that there's something quite beautiful in you just, the process becomes visible and the process is also part of the demands and you kind of leave it at the doorstep of the institution and you say, you figure it out. <laughs> so, and I think there's also something beautiful in that sort of multiplicity of voices which is, can become visible. Uh, and, and the assembly is, is, is not avoiding that but sorting through those uh, processes, which I think begins 
from your person with values that engages with other people through potential acts of friendship, which is maybe hopefully moving towards this like horizon of equality, not assuming you're at the inequality. Um, and this is something, we also did something similar here in, um, this is an exhibition that we did in the corridor at TU Delft, which is opposite the supposed canon of architecture, which is, of course, 100 white men from Europe and the US um, that have a very particular idea of who practices architecture and you're an individual that is, of course, hiding the un unpaid labor and stolen ideas behind your work. So what we did was we created a uh, undefined list, of, uh, you know, a rewriting of the canon, which was um, a, like intentionally undefinitive uh, list of knowledges otherwise or excluded knowledges. And what we did with this was it was a potentially endless list of um, things that people wanted to add into this into this canon. So people would say, I want to put this here because I think it's important. And then we say, okay, then we should put it there. But, but then we're not taking that as a sort of end point, but it's a basis for us to begin engaging with each other. So this rewriting of the canon became a sort of ongoing exhibition that is then also a presentation to the institution, but also really just a gathering amongst ourselves of how do we talk about what knowledges matter and account for, and we can remember things and make note of these things and so on. So this is also just the same as the other one where we're just presenting our process. And the outcome isn't finished, and, uh, and yeah, it just goes on like that, let's say. So, I mean, I don't know if th this question of what it does to the institution, I'm not so sure about, right? I mean, in some sense, the gathering and this ongoing attentiveness is the assembly, I guess. Um, and maybe that is a pressure on the fact that it has occurred and is continuing to occur, and maybe it can just supersede the institution by going around it, but for that I'm not sure. I, I just will conclude by wrapping up what I think is uh, important for, for how we think about architecture and assemblies, which is maybe to repeat a little bit that I'm a, I'm a bit interested in architecture, which is to shift away from form and representation of things, that what they look like and how they are actually like existing as a space, and more on how those things are, are made, um, and how we do things and how we interact with each other beyond objects and protocols. So I think that's also um, related to assemblies. I think it, it, it's, it's so then it goes beyond just having a collective consensus handbook or putting chairs in a circle, right? So it, it's like these uh, next steps that I think, you know, a collective by itself doesn't mean anything. Um, so I, I think it's very much also uh, the politics of buildings is very much related to that because a building, if we just look at the facade, it's very much hiding many things behind it uh, of, of how it's been constructed, how it's been brought there, how it's been financed, so on and so forth. So a building site itself is an assembly. It's an assembly of bodies, material, relations, and so on. So it becomes critically important that you, you have a design responsibility to engaging in that as a sort of choreographer for the beginning of this stage of ongoing uh, life, which is also going to happen within the building and the building decaying and so on. So, and I think that, uh, that ability to engage in, in how you're going to start, continue, and endure in that process 
uh, is very much also coming from uh, from our knowledges of I don't know ruin or decay or, decay or something because our knowledges come from somewhere. We are people that are entering into situations with skills and practice and experience and history and values, right? And so the the skill to be able to uh, respond uh, to a situation, I, I think, is maybe what you could say allows for the, the possibility of ethics or improvisation or encounter. So I, I think that's what I like to focus on when I'm thinking about building things or assembling things, right? Is is that performative shift, I'd say. So I, I, I will stop there. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Tommy. Um, just to immediately jump in in a conversation, I would like to uh, hook onto what you were saying about anti-form and anti-method, and then um, you're you're t talking about sorting through processes and process as a as a is actually becomes the method. Um, as a question a bit towards uh, Ying and Hodan to start with, um, I guess it's. It's interesting to be anti-form, but form form is also exactly the thing that's going to uh, that can also be codes of conduct, or it can also be exactly the thing that will ensure that something is non-repressive, etc. And I'm very curious, um, maybe in light of of what uh, both Janine and Tommy and uh, have have presented, whether Ying and Hodong could say something about what happened in the assemblies in Costco, if certain practices were also consolidated, whether, yeah, there were practical lessons learnt that we can take into uh, a future of assembly. To exactly to counter the bullshit assemblies that Hodan is referring to. Here's the... figure out if there were I think if there were any rituals or habits or or practical sort of interactions that you think yeah? yeah maybe maybe you can say something from your experience in giving that workshop with Aisha I think it was funny that you were saying like oh we just did something and, and like because mm -hmm. I really appreciated mm -hmm. that workshop because it was very practical mm -hmm. um, Maybe you can mm, give something about that. Yeah. So that's what I did like. Actually, that's what I did like. Uh, that the emphasis was always on practices, and um, in all of the conversations I've been part of, a lot of people, of course, talk about talked about the history of, you know, the, their collective and how they developed the practice. But it was really cool that the, a lot of the conversations were about um, this is how we did something. And, and it was and it was practical and, and it and that's why why I also felt like it was useful because it's about comparing comparing notes comparing process and and learning from each other in that way and not so much you know thinking together and talking together in an abstract way is also very useful but the emphasis on practical steps that people took and what worked and what didn't work I really like that that emphasis 
Yeah, because you actually, in that workshop, you really focus on the work floor, right? Mm -hmm. So um, maybe you can say something about the response of people that were participating in that session. How were they reacting on like these questions that you like very upfront asked them, like, okay, what does your team look like? You know, we can talk about diversity, but what um, are you actually doing to implement mm -hmm. that? Wow, what did I ask people? <laughs> what did we ask people? So it was about, this was four years ago. So this was about, indeed, uh, this was the one that was about care and, and, and reproductive care. Reproductive care? How do you call it again? What do you call reproductive it? Reproductive labor. And so who's doing the cleaning? Who's doing the sort of uh, the shoulder to cry on? Who's doing the... The making sure that the machine runs and people can do their their work and how is that divided and and how does gender and race and and citizenship and 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 ability and sexuality all these axes of you know yeah privilege and oppression how does that impact um, that and and what is that okay so when is what does that look like in your um, in your workspace um, so yeah. Um, I guess we did ask those questions and how did the people respond? I guess people thought that we flattened everything. They were like, well, I guess that people were, right? I mean, it was, it, it felt like it was not, uh, it was a little bit maybe reductive that people felt like maybe it was a little, that's, that's what I remember. I, I misremember also. Have you heard um, of that, Philippine? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is a useful answer, maybe? That's a very useful answer. Uh, I, I mean, I, I'm very interested in this uh, question that all of you touched on in different ways of um, uh, the ambition of horizontality, which actually then hides all sorts of um, hierarchies. Uh, whether it's hierarchies in, that, that have to do with the past, or whether it's hierarchies that are not spoken about uh, who, who is sitting on top of which budget, etc. I'm, I'm quite curious towards the public, um, speaking of sort of practices, uh, what it did for you, the fact that Janine was, uh, for example, um, bringing in these sounds, or speaking in a slightly different way, hesitantly sometimes, or... or introducing silences. I'm just curious uh, whether somebody has something to say about what that did to the dynamic of, of, yeah, the speaker who speaks and the listeners who listen. Anybody? Come on, I'm sure you have something to say. Um, yeah, I just told my friends that when I came in, I we just came out of a conversation and it was kind of chaotic in my head and I had a difficult to focus on the first speaker. I'm sorry, it was not that it was not interesting, but it was difficult to focus <laughs> because of my own situation. But then you asked us to sit down and close our eyes and it is weird that it was like you uh, leading the conversation makes it... Um, it makes me th think about, um, it's like you're on the stage, but you were not really on the stage, but it was not hierarchical, how do you, how to print, I don't know really how to pronounce okay. it, but it's okay. But it's, it, it was interesting in my opinion, because we, it felt really um, like you were asking us to be in the same space. Uh, and that was really interesting for me. 
So that's what I can say about that, that it was really um, bringing everybody together in, instead of um, really forcing people, but just asking a really gentle, nice, quiet way of, yeah. Being present. Being present, yeah. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. And also in a way kind of giving or next to like being together, also kind of allowing a person to be alone or allowing a person to be in its own kind of space and time and body and experience, which maybe can create also togetherness. Um, but I think also that, yeah, that's also kind of beautiful that, yeah, it's not maybe about who's there or who's here or who's behind me, or who, but just about like, okay, Close your eyes, and that's the space. That's all the space you have, and that's a very special space, I think, or place. Yeah. So, um, is this one? Is it working? Yes. So maybe I use this moment to uh, send Philippine <laughs> away. <laughs> for uh, some inevitable reason she needs to leave now so I'm taking over in tune with Eliana <laughs> so thank you so much for moderating thank you so much thanks thank very much for I really apologize I have to get the last train back to Brussels where I live because otherwise I have a problem in the morning with an interview very very sorry and thank you so much Great, and uh, I also like to check about the kind of uh, listening capacity in the room because I, I don't have good hearing <laughs> ability and then when I was standing over there I already could feel it sounded so distant. And then here, when you are here, it's like incredible. Mm -hmm. So if you want to experience more, you know, um, <laughs> tangible, sensible, <laughs> Uh, space of listening and speaking, please uh, come closer. Great, thank you. <laughs> uh, uh, different, correct. <laughs> um, yeah, so what, uh, yeah, by the way, my name is Bina. Um, um, <laughs> why are you laughing? I'm a director at Casco. Um, so I've been also uh, being uh, part of organizing assembly at Casco uh, through these three, last three editions. Um, and uh, I was also behind organizing uh, this symposium. I wouldn't call it assembly. This is definitely something being assembled, but uh, I wouldn't call it, I would make, I propose to make distinction from assembly and I've, I've been kind of behind uh, supporting uh, Leana <laughs> and it was uh, Leana who brought this angle of ruin and uh, I didn't understand fully <laughs> but it really struck me to be something very important. Uh, it just changed the perspective of uh, sensing and understanding um, the time where we live in, 
it's a very curious that I mean like it's also kind of a very positive, constructive human capacity that we can be here without thinking of how it was for last one year and a half uh, by ourselves and then in our surroundings. Um, and then kind of massive extinction going on, but still like we have capacity for uh, capacity of not sensing it. So bring this uh, frame or perspective of ruin um, was like next to assembly was really uh, oh, like shocking <laughs> uh, but uh, meaningful and then today's contribution uh, really uh, gave me uh, articulation of what it is. So what it is as I understood is this contrast between institution and ruin. So I think institution is effort to Regis, avoid the ruin. Um, and uh, I felt, you <laughs> I felt uh, when Hodan was speaking, like I felt very uncomfortable because I, I felt like maybe I, like it's not that I invited Hodan to uh, praise of Casco assembly, <laughs> but it felt like uh, I, put her in that position. Uh, so it was a great when she brought a uh, critique and then kind of this uh, like a position that we can easily fall into uh, whether we are conscious or not. Um, but nevertheless, I want to bring something positive about Casco Assembly. Don't forget I'm director here. <laughs> Uh, uh, is is a uh, uh, yeah within within this uh, ongoing ruination actually uh, uh, also a colleague and friend artist uh, Natasha, Natasha Sadri Hagigian using this notion ruinous ruin so ruin I don't know it's like ruin that is really really like ruin becoming ruin. <laughs> so it's a like layered and expanding process of ruination. Uh, uh, I felt horrified when I attended assembly that kept um, uh, very uh, proper protocol. And, and then it, if there's something meaningful in our assembly is that it is messy and compositional and then we bring different tools here and there. Uh, and and it, it is uh, personally also one way to really like keeping the relationship. So I was thinking of like, again, like what is friendship in the ruin or uh, within institution? So because keeping institution against ruin also breaks apart friendship. Uh, but uh, within the assembly, somehow I think we survive uh, from uh, this ruinous in, ruining institution or something like that. So, um, now I won't speak any longer, but um, another person can speak, and then another and another. You can gradually disappear if you are bored, <laughs> and drinks are there. Um, yeah. Thank you, Bena, also, and thank you, indeed, for the sound. Uh, <laughs>
Yeah, thank you also for uh, indeed making this connection between the ruin versus kind of the institution. Um, yeah, and to also the public, we said uh, the program would uh, end at nine, so indeed it now is nine. Um, so maybe we can go towards a closing, but I would be really interested in also hearing the speakers, maybe if they want to respond on one of the other presentations, or yeah, if you see connections between more the maybe artistic approaches or the more um, reflective on the assemblies of Costco, for example, approaches, um, if someone wants to reflect on that. I see, hold on, oh, maybe, no? no? <laughs> okay. <laughs> maybe this could... Yes, um, and if people need to leave, please uh, leave if you have to. But um, do you have a question, Ying? Do you mean that? Is there anyone here who has a question to maybe uh, one of the speakers or wants to say or comment? There's a mic here and... <laughs> Please, yeah. Um, so the question that I had listening to all of it, uh, and thank you for everyone who spoke, um, is what is then the necessity of participating in, in institutionalized uh, processes in the first place, right? Because, um, I, again, I'm coming from a place where I haven't really participated in the art world or uh, in a lot of these educational, uh, for example, uh, institutions, right? And, but of course it does still feel um, like there is a place for that, but then listening to it, because they reproduce a lot of these systems of oppression, why participate in the first place uh, is my question. That's a good question. Is there someone who wants to respond? Can, can you say something about the position that you are coming from? If you're not coming from the, if you're not really participating in the art institutional world, can you say something about? Well, as in not, not in a way that I depend on it, right? Not in the way that I was, uh, I don't really have the chance to, for, in, for many reasons, but at the same time, I do feel like a lot of the times in my life, I feel like I would want to. But it's also still, you know, uh, there is that component to it that that not only do like financial issues stop me, but also the philosophical issues. Right. So. Uh, yeah. I can share my thoughts because I, I ask myself that question what the hell am I doing there why 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 am I why am I participating it's so difficult it takes a lot it takes up a lot of energy it's really draining it's really it's really um, uh, tough to see people being hurt it's really tough to be constantly in a situation myself where I uh, now I have a little bit of power and of course I'm being exploited myself, also for my identities and all that kind of stuff, and being an activist, blah, 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 blah. But like, it takes a lot of work to try to do it ethically, and you don't know who to trust. So what, why am I, what am I doing there? And 
at, at the moment, the only answer that I can give myself is that's, I mean, necessity and financial necessity is a big part of it, you know, so I'm there uh, because I think that there are people there that can give me the financial resources so that I can do work that I think is useful for other people, for the people, uh, you know, for, for people that are um, not being served by the institution at the moment, for example, an ethnographic museum. It's a museum that has um, participated, and still, it, it's really upholding a lot of myths, a lot of stories that uphold um, whiteness, that um, people internalize, whether they're white or they're people of color, about their value in the world, and there's a lot of erasure of colonial history, and the Ethnographic Museum has a responsibility to undo that erasure and to make accessible knowledge and to empower people to create their own knowledge. Um, and n n not a lot of people are invested in that in the museum that I'm working with, uh, in. And so it's about, okay, can I get a budget to redistribute money to hire my friends and collaborators and people that I think are doing good work so that they can do their work? I can, so can I facilitate them? That's how I see my position in the museum. Can I facilitate? Can I redistribute money? Can I redistribute power? And that's it. I don't, I don't know where I can find that money elsewhere you know so and that's what's cool about Costco as well which I don't feel I don't feel pressure to compliment <laughs> Costco <laughs> not at all but I think it's really cool where you're like okay this is how money and power is, is distributed in the Netherlands you have to apply for grants as an institution you have to get some institutional legitimacy that's the way that it works so when you don't want to play that game and you want to redistribute power you want to redistribute the, the, who, who gets to say uh, what is valuable in the world and who gets to get the money and the resources and the, and the time and space and the mental energy to create stuff in the world. How do you do that in a different way? How can you play the game that's being played against you? And I think that's really cool about, about, about what you're doing at Costco. It's like, okay, we're going to try to change the rules. We're going to find allies. We're going to try to you know um, learn skills together and um, sort of like be like um, uh, what's it called camouflaged in the as an institution but we're actually doing something else that's not really what institutions are about yeah <laughs> thank you uh... yeah thanks for that I want to echo that uh, in terms of like okay you go to the institutions because it's where the resources are um, also, like for your own kind of survival, like how to pay your rent, you know, and um, so yeah, I think that's very, very important because uh, yeah, we we just live in this world where you have to be waged. So where do you get it from? And then maybe something else to add is to say like, um, not all institutions are the same, you know. Like there is not one kind of institution. Even if you look at this city. Uh, the two bigger political art institutions or the two art uh, institutions uh, are super different in terms of size, in terms of power, uh, in terms of practice. Um, uh, yeah, and I think for me personally, I uh, because uh, after I graduated from the institution of uh, of the of the academy, right, of the university, I quite quickly moved into Costco. But after some years, I also um, realize how the institutional rhythm really sucks you dry, you know, in terms of rhythm of exhibition making, events organizing, it's very 
like quick, 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 and like a lot, and <laughs> it, uh, uh, I couldn't, um, uh, yeah, I, I, it's, it's, it's not something easy to escape, but uh, to move into a freelance position where maybe in that sense you could have a little bit more control over what kind of jobs, what kind of projects, what kind of time do you want to spend. Um, coming from also an activist um, uh, community, how can you make that space within the institutions? How do you kind of function as a parasite, right? Where it's also for the, the question of the artist, the artist as a parasite in the institution. How, what can we see in these big structures um, that have a lot of resources? How can we use these resources to redistribute them to our communities, to, uh, you know? Um, and I think Costco is quite unique in this. I don't know an institution like Costco that functions like this because when I worked here as community organizer, I just got a budget for, I don't know, paint for banners, you know? And they said, okay, here's our space, just bring your people and you can just use it whenever. Uh, I thought that was like, oh, nice. And now after like being not in the institution of Costco in the daily practice of it, I can see how that was weird, you know? So, but still you can see how, how people are making more space for like, okay, social practice, you know, they want, uh, they want more communities inside. They're thinking about, okay, what is this whole diversity? Like how can we do that in our programming or whatever? So I think there is potential from the outside as parasites, as activists, as artists, as cultural workers um, to influence the this discourse. And ideally, it goes into the practice. That is a whole next level of transformation. But yeah, it starts with the talking, right? It start, what words are you using and then what actions are connected to that? So yeah, I believe we need to stay in the institutions to because there our survival is where our money comes from. Uh, we can distribute that to our people and then try to change a little bit uh, in the way that they work or think. Can I, add, can I add something? At the same time, you don't have to be identifying with the institution. You can, you can see it as um, you're being offered a contract and you can you can all your waarden and the manier van werken onderschrijven. You can you can become a part of the machine and also the values and the way that people treat each other and the hierarchies that are there. And there is an option to resist collectively. And you don't have to become part I'm not I'm not invested that's what my friend um, always says, I'm not invested in this institution, I'm not here for the survival of the institution. I'm here for my own agenda. She reminded me when I came to work at the museum Every day when you go in, you have to you have to think to yourself, what is my agenda today? How does the how does the institution serve my agenda? And my agenda is not only mine alone. I'm serving and facilitating a collective agenda for liberation, for for more so, you know social justice. And if you don't have that clear idea, you're going to be used, or you're going to start playing the power games, and you're going to be starting. You, you're, you're gonna you're gonna be really abusive because that's what it what it um, asks people to do. You have to be exploitative, extractive, abusive towards your colleagues, towards collaborators, towards students, towards and everybody. You know, is it's very tempting to participate in those games because that's how it works. So I'm sorry for sounding like I'm a very paranoid person, but it's it is it is like that. So you can um, be sort of changing it to serve a collective 
a collective agenda for collective liberation, for social justice, but not um, identifying with the institution and not being there for the institution because it'll eat you up and spit you out. And then it'll be from assemblies will go to, I don't know, some other trend where, you know, you know what I mean? It's not really about you. So, so just to add, add that as well. Thank you both, Hodan and Ying. Yeah, oh, sorry, yeah. I was here. <laughs> and thank you also for your question. Um, yeah, I think uh, we can maybe... Uh, you also had a question, right? Or a comment? No, I was uh, thinking to, to respond to your question, but I think much of it has been, been said. So. Okay. Yeah, the only thing maybe I would like to add is to, to really... Yeah, maybe maybe look um, to the diverse way that institutions are organized and and the people who work in it because I don't think that it's all bad, you know. Also in art schools, a lot of good teachers, uh, good policies. Some of it not, you know. But personally, I, I really like. You don't have to choose. I think. I mean, you can be part of an artist collective, or you can start something yourself and teach at an academy and do good stuff there, you know, and 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 be part of something that not uh, that you don't agree with in total, but partly you really like it. Maybe I know I do. You know, I love art schools. I love to be able to come here and that it's that this is organized and you are here, you know. So I think that's also uh, I'm not against institutions, but I think some practices are are really, really, really not. Uh, going well, a lot of it. I, um, yeah, I'm an artist. I work in the art art world in in different ways. Um, you know, when when you have an exhibition at the museum, it's way different than when you work behind the desk in in Witte de Wit, for instance. And you know, nobody looks at you like you're anything. You know, I mean, um, it's it's quite different the way institutions function. Some some are worse, some are some are, I don't know. I, I just want to stress that, that it's good to, to maybe um, yeah, see details and see people and see ways also to collaborate because um when I teach in art school I can sometimes propose uh classes that, that really change I hope uh something in the curriculum, you know? Although it may be small, but you can you can contribute. So in that sense, I think it can also be very positive to, to collaborate and not only to be a parasite. Okay, yes, sometimes, and you have to be, you know, really critical. Mm, yeah. Thank you so much for your comment. Um, yeah, I think we should close it here, also to be uh, respectful of everyone's time. Uh, but thank you so much to um, all the speakers today, Tommy, and also Dagmar who wasn't here, Hodan, Yang, and uh, Janine and also Philippine who left already, and also thank you all for coming, and thank you also from Club Solo uh, for the collaboration and the really beautiful way of working together. Um, so yeah, there's uh, more time until then. We have the space to have drinks together, so you can also ask your questions then to each other. Thank you so much.